Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to talk about hyperoxia, one of the issues near and dear to my heart. I'm known in the ICU for pursuing this with a vengeance. In fact, the respiratory therapists say that when they come on for the morning, if they go around and see that patients are on 25% or even 21% oxygen on the vent, they know that I have started a week on the unit that day. Before we get started, a couple of announcements. First of all, I have to tell you, I found this really great program called iDrive. Now, I may be coming late to the party here, and maybe all of you know about it already, but uh, I have no investment in this company. I get no uh, money from them whatsoever, but I was looking for a good cloud-syncing application and program, and I just looked at some articles online, and this kept coming up as one of the top-rated cloud-syncing programs, both in terms of value, it's not that expensive, and in terms of quality of of, uh, device and quality of application. And so I checked it out, and I really like it. It allows you, it's got a nice interface, it allows you to sync, it continuously syncs, and uh, easy to access. It'll sync all your devices, your phone, your iPad, your computer. Uh, And for a terabyte of space, is uh, it's only, they have a deal right now, it's only $14.99 for the first year, and then $60 a year subsequent to that. So not too bad, and I kind of like it. So check it out if you're looking for a cloud app. I have a very important announcement to make, which is that I made a mistake in my last episode, episode 10 on IV induction agents. I said that the dose units for dexmedetomidine for Presidex were mics per kilo per minute, and that is not correct. The correct dosing units are mics per kilo per hour. And I want to really thank Melanie Browder, Melanie, I hope I'm saying your name right, who picked this up and posted a comment on the website. So I've made that note in the show notes for episode 10, but I also want to say it here. If you were listening to that last episode, 
Presidex dosing is mics per kilo per hour. Also, to those CA3 residents out there who are about to take boards, in fact, I thought I wasn't going to get this up and, and published until after you had taken boards, but I think I probably will get it up just a day or two before you actually sit for boards. So again, I'll say good luck. Certainly, I imagine that when you are done, the last thing you want to do is listen to a podcast about anesthesiology. I fully encourage you to relax and celebrate being done. Uh, whenever you do come back to ACRAC, uh, of course, uh, I hope that you do continue to listen as you go out there and pursue fellowship or career. I'm always happy to have you listening and giving me ideas and suggestions for what we can do going forward as you gain a different perspective as a fellow or as an attending. And of course, for those CA1s who are in the last couple days of your first month and getting ready next week to be alone in the operating room for the first time, just know that we've all been there. You're going to do great. There's going to be plenty of eyes nearby if you need any help. Uh, but you've had good training this past month, and I have no doubt. Those of you who I know at Hopkins, I am fully confident in. I know you're going to do a fantastic job, and I'm sure others of you listening at other institutions have been trained well, too, and are ready to be out there working on your own and with an attending who's supervising other rooms as well as yours. All right, let's move on and talk about hyperoxia. I became interested in this when I was an ICU fellow and have maintained an interest mostly because I find it interesting, but also because it's something we really don't do well. It's one of these things in medicine where there's a fair amount of data to tell us what we should be doing, and yet it goes against practice, the way practice has been done for so long that we have a really hard time making any change. So I hope, after you listen to this, that you will consider changing your practice if you're in the ICU as a resident, as an attending, if you'll think about paying a little closer attention to the FIO2 and thinking about ways that you can change and do better for your patients in terms of the amount of oxygen that you're giving them. So the bulk of this talk is going to be on the risks of hyperoxia and the reasons why we should try to avoid it. We'll talk just briefly about some of the history. We'll talk about some of the purported benefits and then really focus on those risks. And those risks involve a lot of different areas. So we'll talk about reactive oxygen species and why they can be dangerous. And we'll really focus clinically on post-cardiac arrest, post-MI, post-stroke, post-TBI, lung injury, COPD, and also a little bit of intraoperative thoughts about hyperoxia. And that'll be what we'll cover today. What I'm not going to talk a lot about are neonates. It's very well established, and I think practice has changed in this area, that we should not be using high levels of oxygen on neonates. So the gas of choice for neonatal resuscitation is clearly room air, and I do think that's followed in practice. It's well established that excess oxygen can cause serious harm to neonates. Retinopathy of prematurity is an obviously well-known example, bronchopulmonary dysplasia as well. And the younger the neonate, the worse the damage can be. And part of this is because antioxidant mechanisms in the lungs don't develop until late gestation. And so a premature baby is going to have even less protection against reactive oxygen species than a full-term baby. All of this, by the way, and everything I'm going to talk about is well-researched, uh, and although there aren't a lot of randomized trials, especially for the adult things I'll talk about, there are a lot of observational studies, and I will leave all those references in the 
slides that I'll post along with this talk. All right, just a couple of fun questions to start out. So if you didn't see the New England Journal paper about this, what do you think were the average PaO2 and percent sat among seven physicians who were breathing ambient air on top of Mount Everest? So your choices are 24.6 as a PaO2 and 54% as a sat, 39.4 for the PaO2 and 68% as a sat, 11.8 for a PaO2 and 27.5% for a sat, or zero for the PaO2 and 0% for the sat because these were cardiothoracic surgeons and they need no petty comfort like oxygen for survival. If you guessed the first one, 24.6 for the PO2 and 54% for the SAT, you'd be right, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. These seven physicians were able to survive on top of Mount Everest with a SAT of 54%. And we'll talk more about this, but the point here is that we have evolved, human beings have evolved to have quite robust mechanisms for dealing with hypoxia. But as we'll talk about, we have not evolved any protective mechanisms against hyperoxia because it wasn't possible to be hyperoxic until very recently in human evolution. Another interesting point in terms of the history of all of this, do you know how heart surgery was done on infants prior to cardiopulmonary bypass? It turns out it was. They were able to do it. And what they did, and there are videos of this online, they did the surgery in a hyperbaric chamber, and it allowed them to get the PaO2 in the infant's blood up into the thousands. And so this is an example of where hyperoxia actually allowed something to be done that wouldn't have been able to be done otherwise. So with PaO2 that high, they could stop the heart and the blood that was already just sitting there would have so much oxygen that it would give them a few minutes. The tissues could go on extracting that oxygen for a few minutes while the heart was stopped without becoming ischemic. And then they'd start the heart again, then stop again. And they could do these stops while they did their operation. So that's actually how it was done before they could do cardiopulmonary bypass on infants. Another funny historical fact is that there is a monstrosity called the Cunningham Ball. And this is in Cleveland, Ohio. And a wealthy manufacturer gave a million dollars back in 1928. So quite a lot of money back then for a doctor to construct a gigantic steel ball, which was essentially a hyperbaric hospital. It was a steel ball that had a hospital inside and it allowed people inside to be at higher pressure which allowed their PaO2 to be a little higher. The funny thing about this is that what it allowed was for those inside the hospital to breathe 42% oxygen. That's it. So you could have done the same thing with a face mask, but instead they built a million-dollar ball. And the idea, Dr. Cunningham, it's called the Cunningham Ball after the doctor who built it, Dr. Cunningham, he believed that this breathing hyperoxic mixture, this 42% oxygen, would cure diseases such as pernicious anemia, diabetes, and cancer. This thing was 64 feet in diameter and five stories tall, and of course, never came to anything. You'll hear people say that increased levels of oxygen or high FiO2 is important for preventing surgical site infection. And 
the truth is that the data is pretty mixed. There was an RCT published in JAMA in 2004 that looked at 165 patients. This is by Pryor and colleagues and found that when they randomized people to either 80% or 35% oxygen during surgery and for the first two hours after surgery, they actually had an increase in surgical site infections in the group receiving the 80% FiO2. Now, there was some criticism of that study, and subsequently there was a meta-analysis published in 2009 by Caden and colleagues in the Archives of Surgery, which showed a small protective effect of increased FiO2. However, when you took the biggest study that was part of that meta-analysis out, there was no longer an effect. And so any problems with that one large study actually greatly influenced the overall uh, outcome of that meta-analysis. So it's not clear which way this goes, but it's certainly not proven that high levels of FiO2 are protective against surgical site infection. And what we'll talk about in a little bit is there is actually reason to think that high levels of oxygen, of inspired oxygen, may actually reduce oxygen delivery to tissues, including to the surgical site, and therefore might actually cause harm rather than good. And again, we'll get into this in a, in a few minutes of why high FiO2 might actually decrease oxygen delivery where you want it to go. And remember, as we move through here, that we've evolved over the entire span of human evolution to deal with hypoxia. You could become hypoxic simply by climbing to high altitude. But there was no way to be hyperoxic until incredibly recently in human history when supplemental oxygen was available. Before that, the highest PaO2 that you could possibly get if you hyperventilated, like a pregnant woman who has a natural hyperventilation, might be 105, 110 at the most. But getting PaO2s in the 200, 300, 500 range was impossible. And so the human body didn't develop any protective mechanisms against it. What we do know, and this has been looked at, so Damiani and colleagues in critical care in 2014 published a study where they looked at what is actually done in ICUs across the country. And they found that all comers, post-MI, post-cardiac arrest, post-stroke, they typically get supplemental oxygen regardless of their SAT. And we know that. People learn in medical school, I learned in medical school, that if a patient comes in with chest pain, you give them Mona, morphine, oxygen, nitrates, and aspirin, the O being oxygen. You give them oxygen regardless of what their SAT is. But it turns out that that may not be good. And in 2013, Suzuki and colleagues found that when they looked across ICUs, they found that most patients in the ICU had a SAT above 98% and that 26% of the patients had a PaO2 that was higher than 120 and 4% had a PaO2 higher than 200. Only 1% of patients were on an FiO2 between 21 and 29%. Only 1% of ICU patients across the country, and we're talking about the United States here. And again, what they found is that almost no physician turned the FiO2 down below 30%. Once they got to 30%, and actually more commonly 40%, they just left it. They figured the patient's on minimal oxygen, and so they didn't make any adjustments no matter what the PaO2 was. If the patient became hypoxic, they turned up the FiO2, but as long as the patient was not hypoxic, if they got down to 40%, maybe 30%, they left it alone. They didn't turn it down lower because they figured there was no harm. But as we'll talk about, there may well be.
be harm. Let's start by talking about reactive oxygen species. So we're talking about things like superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, peroxynitrate, hydroxyl radicals. And these are things that may have some important role in the body at naturally occurring levels. In other words, the levels that the body produces when breathing regular room air. And they do things like participate in the neutrophil attack on invasive microbes. But when they gather in excess, which happens when there's supplemental oxygen delivered, they interact with and damage DNA, lipids, proteins, and carbohydrates. It turns out that concentrations of reactive oxygen species are increased and can be measured in the exhaled gas after just one hour of breathing 28% oxygen. So 28%, what we would consider very low FiO2 for supplemental oxygen, and only one hour, and we already can start to measure that there are increased reactive oxygen species in the lungs that are being breathed out. Reactive oxygen species can take part in a variety of reactions that are harmful in the body. One very important one is that they can react with and eliminate nitric oxide. Now, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to remember this because the ability of reactive oxygen species to eliminate nitric oxide causes vasoconstriction. And this is going to be really important when we talk about this more in a minute. There's also a concept called hyperoxic hypocapnia. And this may also be due to reactive oxygen species, but it turns out that hyperoxia causes hypocapnia. And the, react, the reactive oxygen species may interact in the respiratory centers of the brain to cause a hyperventilation and therefore reduction in PaCO2, which also causes vasoconstriction. Let's move on and talk about post-cardiac arrest hyperoxia. So it seems like, and I think any of us who've trained in medicine would say, after a cardiac arrest, it seems like the body's been hyper, hypoxic, the body's been ischemic, there's been no blood flow. It seems like giving supplemental oxygen would be a good idea. Well, it turns out it's probably not true. So there have been a variety of studies that looked at this. There's something called the two-hit model. This was proposed by Ball and Renzani in intensive care medicine in 2015. And the first hit is the hypoxic ischemic injury from the cardiac arrest. But now imagine tissue in the heart and the brain throughout the body that is vulnerable because it's now been ischemic. And then it gets a second hit, which is, includes a couple of things. First of all, reactive oxygen species, which now can damage that tissue even more because it's already been put at risk. And then also hyperoxic vasoconstriction. So again, because of that hypocapnia and the scavenging of nitric oxide, you get decreased blood flow to some of these areas and therefore worsening ischemia, even though you're delivering oxygen. So both of those things lead to a second hit and you can have worse outcomes in patients after a cardiac arrest. Now, I mentioned before the idea of hyperoxic hypocapnia. Let me say a few more words about it. So the mechanism of this is not fully understood, but what happens when people are breathing a high level of FiO2 is there's an initial short period of hypoventilation, but then followed by hyperventilation. And there's a couple of mechanisms that are thought to be responsible for this. One is that oxygen induces vasoconstriction in the brain and leads to reduced blood flow and therefore hyperventilation. 
And also the reverse Haldane effect. So increased oxygen causes a reduced binding of CO2 to the hemoglobin in the tissues and in the respiratory center of the brain. And this is going to lead to a locally increased PaCO2, even if the overall PaCO2 is normal. And therefore, if the local PaCO2 around the respiratory center in the brain is high because of decreased binding of the CO2 in the setting of lots of oxygen there, then that respiratory center is going to think the patient's hypercapnic and signal the body to hyperventilate. Again, these are not well proven or well understood, but these are some possible explanations. The, what is well known is that this happens. Hyperoxia does cause hypocapnia and hyperventilation. So Elmer and colleagues in 2015 in intensive care medicine took a look at 184 patients over a two-year period who had cardiac arrest and then survived at least 24 hours. 36% of them were exposed to severe hyperoxia, and they defined that as a PaO2 greater than 300. And of this group that were exposed to this PaO2 over 300, the odds ratio for reduced survival for every hour of exposure was 0.83. And this was statistically significant. So every hour they were exposed to a PO2 greater than 300, they had a decreased survival. There was a small randomized trial done in 2006 by Kusima and colleagues in resuscitation. It was just meant to be a pilot study, but they randomized patients to either 30% or 100% oxygen after return of spontaneous circulation in the setting of cardiac arrest. And there were only 14 patients in each arm. But what they found is that there was an increased, there were increased markers of neuronal injury in the hyperoxic group. And they found that there was no hypoxemia in the 30% group. So they found it was safe to do. You can give these people 30% FiO2 and they won't become hypoxic. So it's safe to do and a trend at least towards increased outcomes in this randomized trial. Kilgannon and colleagues published a large trial in JAMA in 2010 where they looked at database from 120 ICUs across the country. So they looked at a ton of patients. And these are patients who had non-traumatic cardiac arrest who got CPR, and they looked at them within 24 hours of ICU arrival. So there were, they divided them into three groups, a hypoxic group, PaO2 less than 60, a normoxic group, which they defined very widely as a PaO2 between 60 and 299, and a hyperoxic group with a PaO2 greater than 300. They had 6,300 patients, and they found that the mortality in patients who were hyperoxic was 63%, patients who were hypoxic was 57%, and patients who were normoxic was 45%. So obviously the conclusion here is it's best to be normoxic, but if you had to choose whether to be hyperoxic or hypoxic, you'd rather be hypoxic. Your mortality is lower if you're hypoxic than if you're hyperoxic. And this was further supported by Damiani's meta-analysis in 2014 in critical care, which showed an increased mortality overall for hyperoxia. And then again, by Wang and colleagues in resuscitation in 2014, where they looked at 14 studies and found the odds ratio for death was 1.4 with hyperoxia. Let's move on to post-MI. And this is another place where we're all taught, as I said before, that Someone comes in with chest pain or they actually have ST changes on the monitor, on their EKG, give them oxygen. 
But again, we've actually known, there's been a suggestion for a long time that this might not be a good idea. In 1950, Dr. Rusick and his colleagues reported that supplemental oxygen failed to reduce ECG signs of ischemia or to reduce angina. In 1969, Barasa and colleagues proposed that the decreased blood flow from hyperoxia might cause worsening ischemia. And in 1976, there was an RCT which showed increased cardiac markers in acute MI patients who got high-flow oxygen versus just room air. There was also a trend in that study by Rawls and Kenmore toward a tripled death rate, but it wasn't statistically significant. So for a long time, there's been this idea that post-MI, you might be worse off if you got supplemental oxygen. So why would this be? Why would it be worse to give oxygen to someone who's having or had an MI? So it turns out that there's more and more evidence suggesting that supplemental oxygen reduces coronary blood flow, reduces stroke volume and cardiac output, increases SVR, and increases reperfusion injury. Increasing the PaO2 from 100 to 600 increases the content of oxygen in the blood by about 15 mLs per liter, or about that's about 7 to 8%, okay? Hyperoxia, though, that same hyperoxia decreases blood flow to the brain by up to 33% and decreases coronary blood flow by up to 29%. So even though you're increasing the content of oxygen in the blood by 7 or 8%, you're decreasing the blood flow and therefore the oxygen delivery to the important tissues by four times that same amount. It's much worse to do supplemental oxygen in terms of oxygen delivery than not to do it. There is an ongoing randomized trial in Australia that is looking at patients having a STEMI and randomizing them to room air versus supplemental oxygen, looking at infarct size as the primary outcome, and it'll be very interesting to see what the results of that trial are. A Cochrane review in 2010 found that there was no conclusive evidence from randomized trials to support the use of inhaled oxygen in people with acute MI. And they said a definitive randomized control trial is urgently required given the mismatch between trial evidence suggestive of possible harm from routine oxygen use and recommendations for its use in clinical practice guidelines. In other words, guidelines still recommend using it, but the data suggests it's harmful and there's no data to suggest it's helpful. All right, let's move on to looking at post-stroke. So it turns out that in the setting of a stroke, when you have brain endothelial dysfunction, a study by Shin and colleagues in neuroscience in 2014 looking in mice found that hyperoxia in the setting of already damaged cerebral vascular endothelium worsened perfusion to those areas. So adding supplemental oxygen worsened the perfusion to the damaged areas. And part of what they found was that the scavenging of nitric oxide by the reactive oxygen species is probably part of what led to this. A study by Rincon and colleagues in critical care medicine in 2014 looked at post-stroke mortality and compared patients who were hyperoxic, again defined as a PaO2 greater than 300, with patients that were hypoxic, a PaO2 less than 60, or normoxic, the patients in between, and found that the odds ratio for death for hyperoxia was 1.7 and for hypoxia, 1.3. So again, 
it's worse to be hyperoxic than to be hypoxic. But of course, the best is to be normoxic. Now, it would be great if they had broken that huge normoxia category down into, let's say, 60 to 100, 100 to 150, 150 to 200, etc. And that would have given us a better idea of the dangers of mild hyperoxia. We know from these studies that severe hyperoxia, PO2 greater than 300, is definitely bad. Unfortunately, what we don't know for sure is where that cutoff actually lies. In Damiani's meta-analysis in critical care in 2014, they also looked at uh, stroke and found an overall increase in mortality with hyperoxia, again defined as a PO2 greater than 300. Traumatic brain injury has also been looked at, and a large study by Rincon and colleagues in the Journal of Neurology and Neurosurgery and Psychiatry in 2014 found that when they looked at over 1,000 patients throughout 61 different ICUs with traumatic brain injury, again, with those same categories of hyperoxia, hypoxia, and normoxia, they found that the odds ratio for death in the hyperoxia group was 1.5, so a vastly increased risk of mortality with hyperoxia. And the proposed mechanism, again, is this up to 33% decrease in cerebral blood flow with hyperoxia, which may be even worse in the setting of endothelial dysfunction. There was an interesting study by Quintard in neurocritical care in 2014, which found that astrocytes exposed to high FiO2 actually had a reduced ability to protect other neurons from the damage of a brain injury, stroke, or hyperoxia. And so it's not only reduced blood flow, it may be that the hyperoxia, that high PaO2 may interfere with the ability of some of the protective mechanisms that the body has developed to deal with ischemia and actually make it worse. And what's interesting also about this study is that they found that the they didn't just divide it into a PaO2 greater than 300 or an FiO2 that was extremely high. They found that the effect, that decrease in protective ability of astrocytes and the increased damage in the TBI patients happened with a PaO2 greater than 150 and an FiO2 greater than 40%. So here we do have some evidence that would suggest that even relatively low levels of hyperoxia can be harmful. Let's talk for a minute about lung injury from hyperoxia. So this goes way back. In 1775, Joseph Priestley found that, or said that, though pure deflagisticated air might be very useful as a medicine, it might not be proper for us in the usual healthy state to the body. And by pure deflagisticated air, he was referring to oxygen. In 1899... Lorraine Smith exposed animals to three atmospheres of oxygen and found their lungs to be severely damaged. And in the mid-1900s, as more sufficient ventilators were developed, it led to the ability to expose humans to increasing pulmonary oxygen toxicity. The changes that happen in the human lung are quite striking when exposed to hyperoxia. You get denuded alveolar type 1 cells, capillary cell edema, squamous metaplasia of tracheal and bronchial mucosa, eosinophilic slough within bronchioles, formation of hyaline membranes, and an end-stage emphysematous destruction or fibrosis. All of this is similar to ARDS. High levels of oxygen can cause a very similar damage to ARDS in the human lung. 
Clinically, this results in impaired mucociliary function, leading to mucus plugging, atelectasis, secondary infection. Erythema and edema of large airways can also be seen bronchoscopically after just six hours at 90% oxygen. So you can start to see these changes when high levels of oxygen are, uh, patients are exposed to high levels of oxygen for six hours. Six hours could be a case in the OR. This isn't, we're not talking about days and days and days in the ICU. The concentration of reactive oxygen species, as I mentioned before, in exhaled gas can be measured as increasing after just one hour breathing 28% oxygen. And absorptive atelectasis can cause an 11% shunt in healthy people breathing 100% oxygen for just 30 minutes. And what that means is that when you're breathing 100% oxygen and that oxygen gets pulled into the blood from the alveoli, you can end up with a collapsed alveoli leading to atelectasis and because there's no nitrogen in there to stent open that alveoli. And so compared to breathing regular air, after just 30 minutes of 100% oxygen, you can get an 11% shunt. In mouse studies, it's been found that if you knock out superoxide dismutase in mice, which is one of the mechanisms that the body uses to deal with reactive oxygen species, and then expose those mice to hyperoxia, they die very quickly with extensive reactive oxygen species-induced injury to the lungs, heart, and brain. So this just giving more evidence to the fact that reactive oxygen species are very damaging, and the less protection that they have, like a neonate, the more potential damage can be caused. If you have a patient going to the OR or who comes to you in the ICU who has a pre-existing pulmonary injury from, for example, bleomycin or amiodarone or external beam radiation, these patients are at even higher risk of developing diffuse alveolar damage from high levels of FiO2 because they've already had this first hit of damage from, for example, the bleomycin, which can damage the DNA and prevent the lung's ability to deal with the oxidative damage that comes from that high FiO2. In COPD, there is actually a really good randomized trial that supports the avoidance of high FiO2. And what they did, this is in Australia by Austin and colleagues in 2010, is they randomized patients who were call, who called EMS, who called their equivalent of 911, for a COPD exacerbation, and they randomized them to getting either high-flow oxygen, which was 10 liters non-rebreather, or titrated oxygen just to keep their SATs 88 to 92. And they found that the risk of death, the relative risk of death was 0.42 with titrated oxygen versus high-flow oxygen. And for patients with confirmed COPD, so they got to the ER and they were confirmed to be having a COPD exacerbation, the risk ratio was 0.22 for the patients who got just titrated oxygen to keep them 88 to 92. So they were incredibly protected by not being exposed to hyperoxia. The number needed to harm was 14. That means for every 14 patients who got high flow oxygen, one died. But the other interesting thing about this study was that they found that a lot of providers, a lot of paramedics in the ambulances gave patients the high-flow oxygen even if they were randomized and supposed to get just titrated oxygen because it was so ingrained in their heads that high oxygen was better. So they believed that they'd be hurting the patients by not giving them the high-flow oxygen. And this just goes to show how hard it is to change practice. It's still difficult, even though finally now guidelines in the USA and in the UK are suggesting titrating oxygen in COPD exacerbations rather than giving high-flow. It's still hard to get people to do it. All right, a few words about 
intraoperative high FiO2. So the advantage, for example, to giving high FiO2 before intubation, of course, is that if you pre-oxygenate someone with 100% oxygen, you can get quite a long time before they desaturate, eight, maybe even 10 minutes. But the flip side of that is that they can develop quite a lot of atelectasis, as I mentioned before. A compromise would be using high but not 100% FiO2. So if you use 80%, for example, you still get five or six minutes before desaturation, but the percent of atelectasis is cut by a fifth. So you only get about 1% instead of 5 to 6% of atelectasis when you use 80%. And that's because that 20% that's nitrogen can still stent open the alveoli. I already did an episode where I talked about one lung ventilation and using high levels of FiO2, but this can really cause a problem. That lung injury that can be caused from high FiO2 is going to be added to the stress on a single lung being ventilated to have to carry the, stre- the weight of the, the work of the whole body of the two lungs. When one is down, the one that you're ventilating is already under a lot of stress, and then to expose it to high FiO2 can make things even worse. That's why you really should, in one lung ventilation, decrease your FiO2 down until the patient is able to tolerate a lower level or to figure out what lower level they are able to tolerate. If you can give 50% oxygen and the patient is not hypoxic, great. You're doing them a favor by not exposing their one lung to high FiO2. And for the other lung, the operative lung, remember, now has had a couple of injuries. First, it's been hypoxic because you haven't been ventilating it for the case, and it's been operated on, so it's got the stress of a surgery. And to then hit that lung with 100% oxygen will really potentially cause more damage when it's already been damaged. During extubation, again, most people will switch the patient to 100% oxygen, the reason being that if they don't breathe well right away after they're extubated, it gives you some time. I agree that high, relatively high FiO2 is probably a good idea, and the, the few minutes of exposure is probably not going to cause a problem. But remember, if you do use 100% oxygen, you are going to increase atelectasis and shunt. So the best way may be, and I often do this, to instead of turning the oxygen up to 100%, I'll turn it up to 80 or 90% at the end of a case and extubate someone with that so there's a little bit of nitrogen in there to stent open those alveoli. All right. Remember, if you don't take anything else away from this episode, take away that it's not benign to give people supplemental oxygen. When you rotate in the ICU, you should think really hard about reducing the FiO2. Don't just let people tell you, oh, they're on minimals and think you don't need to make any corrections. A patient could be on minimals, meaning 5 over 5 and 40%, and have an FiO2, I mean a PaO2, that could be 200 or more. If that's the case, turn down the oxygen. As I said, I try to get patients down to 21% if I can, if it doesn't make them hypoxic. Often I'm successful in getting them down to 25%, sometimes even 21%. But the idea is look at your PaO2, and if it's high, turn down the oxygen. At the very least, realize that we're not starting at an even playing field. People reflexively give oxygen. They give it to people post-MI. They give it to people post-cardiac arrest, post-stroke, TBI, and all of these areas. And they're probably causing harm. Is there amazing, clear-cut, multiple randomized trial evidence? No. But there's some evidence. There are a lot of observational studies, and they all point in the same direction, which is that we should be limiting hyperoxia. 
So I encourage you when you're out there to think hard about that, pay attention to what the PaO2 is in your patients, and don't let it get above a physiologic level, which is about 100. If it's under 100, they're probably fine. If it's above 100, turn down the oxygen. All right, that's it for today. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave comments there. You can join our mailing list there. And, of course, you can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing what you think about hyperoxia and how you treat your patients and, of course, anything else you'd like to share. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.